If you would, please turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. For those of you who don't know me or you're visiting today, my name is Brian Beamer. I'm one of the elders here at Crossway Bible Church, and it's a joy to have you here with us this morning. And whenever Greg is out, uh, one of the elders typically fill in, and I have the pleasure of uh, bringing the Word of God to you this morning, and Philip will have the pleasure of doing that next week, and uh, it is truly a delight for us to share God's truth with you week in and week out. So typically when Greg is out, I will preach through a book. Um, it took me about eight years to get through the book of Colossians, uh, that was four little chapters, and uh, it'll probably take me a little longer to get through First Peter, but I look forward to it as we go with you throughout this wonderful book. So with that quick intro, please read with me verses 1 through 12 of First Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedience of Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and unfading, having been kept in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him, Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. I first introduced First uh, Peter to you back in December of 2021. And uh, during the, the first message, we spent a great deal of time talking about Peter, that apostolic author. And uh, we took a look at the highlights and the lowlights of his life throughout the scripture. And after gaining an overview of his life, then we turned our attention to the chosen audience. The term chosen actually appears in the Greek at the beginning of the sentence, before aliens and exiles, as the word is translated in your text. They were chosen aliens, according to Peter. 
That chosen audience were from the regions of northern Asia Minor. If you'll uh, look at the map behind me, it's modern-day Turkey, as Peter lays out here. Um, Pontus up here, Galatia, kind of like a, a clockwise going around uh, the, the map there. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is to whom Peter is writing. And in part of the introduction, we took a deeper dive into Peter's chosen audience and predominantly how they were chosen. We took a brief excursus into the doctrine of election and talked about the foreknowledge of God, how their chosen status was brought about by that foreknowledge, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, and to what end they were chosen, to obey Jesus Christ and to be sprinkled with his blood. We ended by looking at Peter's gracious greeting, grace and peace in the fullest measure. May it be yours. Then the third message, we rejoiced along with Peter and blessed God for our substantial, substantive and substantial salvation. He caused us to be born again. It was not our doing. Uh, James 1, of, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. It was according to his grace and mercy and through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God's working in that way provided us with a living hope, a reserved inheritance in heaven and a protected salvation. In the fourth message, we listened as Peter walked through the qualities of a genuine faith, even in the midst of various trials, particularly that it rejoices greatly in the midst of trials. It retains its precious value when tested. It results in praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It loves Christ without having seen him. It believes in him, though not seeing him now, and it greatly rejoices with inexpressible and glorious joy, and it obtains the goal of our faith, the salvation of our, of one, our soul, of one's soul. Now, if you haven't picked up on it yet, Peter, in his overall theme throughout this whole passage of Scripture and from the outset of his letter, is this amazing salvation that we have in and through Jesus Christ. God has provided for us his salvation and his audience, particularly Peter's audience, he's encouraging them in light of the trials and in light of the testings that had come upon his audience. But before Peter launches into how they ought to respond and conduct themselves towards God, towards their brothers, towards the word, the Gentiles, towards their, their wives and towards their husbands, towards their sufferings. He wants to linger a few moments longer on this great salvation that has been provided for us. And in particular, he wants them and us to see that the Old Testament prophets made careful searches and inquiries regarding the salvation of our souls and the circumstances and, and time that the Christ would suffer and the glories that would follow. So with that brief review over those first few sermons, let's Let's look at our text for this morning, verses 10 through 12. And if you would, look at me and read verses 10 with me again. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. Now at the outset, there are some details that we should clarify that are wrapped up in this phrase, concerning this salvation. 
Salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament have similar features in regards to how it begins, and yet distinct differences in how it is lived out in the lives of those to whom it has come. The similarities are that salvation has come, has always come about through repentance and faith. An acknowledgement of the holiness of God and, and a turning away from one's own sin. Turning from their own heart, their heart that is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah 17 tells us. Turning from their own heart that after the flood in Genesis 6-5, God said the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. Faith in the Old Testament turns from that heart and places their faith and trust in God and in his word. There is a mistaken notion that believers in the Old Testament were looking forward to God, or to Christ and the coming of Christ and placing their faith and trust in Christ. However, the Old Testament record just doesn't bear that out. Their faith and trust were placed in Yahweh. And they lived out their faith in Yahweh's provision and the forgiveness and covering of their sin through the sacrificial system. And that is where the distinct differences are found. They placed their trust in Yahweh and sought to be obedient through the law and through the sacrificial system. We've placed our trust in Jesus Christ, coming to God by a new and living way, as Hebrews tells us. In his one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sacrificed. We are now living out our faith and trust in God apart from the law. And without getting too far away from our text, you can read Hebrews 8, 9, and 10 to get a better grasp on the distinctions between that old and the new covenants. Needless to say, this type of salvation, or this salvation as Peter puts it, is distinct from how salvation is brought about in the Old Testament and therefore something of great interest by the prophets. Now, another point of clarification that's probably already crossed many minds here. Salvation is not a prayer that's prayed. Salvation is not simply accepting Jesus into your heart or into your life as if you're adding Jesus to who you are. No. Salvation is the complete and utter surrender of your will to Jesus Christ and a following of your life after him. 2 Corinthians 5.15 says, And he died for all, so that they who live would no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Salvation means that you no longer live for yourself, but for Jesus Christ. That's what salvation means. So let me pause right here and plead with you who have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. Won't you do so today? Young people? Children, boys, girls, today is the day of salvation. Do not let this time go by. Today, turn from your sin, turn from your way, and place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The world is screaming at you to continue in your way. It wants you to follow after the world, the flesh, and the devil. But when Jesus Christ returns, he's going to deal out retribution 
on those who follow the world and the flesh and the devil, on those who don't know God and those who don't obey the gospel. We are pleading with you this morning to trust in the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ. He's the only one who can provide you with real peace, real joy, real satisfaction in life. Well, Peter's not strayed from his theme of salvation from the outset of his letter. And we say along with Peter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord uh, Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is such a great salvation that the, the prophets made careful searches and inquiries about it. The image of these prophets that comes to my mind is of old men who are sitting in older rooms or caves or tents with their candles lit and the parchments and the sacred writings surrounding them to check each one of them and to compare what's been said by another prophet. This way of salvation is so unique and different than that of the Old Testament that Peter describes it another way for us. He says, our great salvation was grace that would come to us. Our great salvation was grace that would come to us. And that's what he says there in verse 10. In contrast to the law that the prophets lived under, this salvation is literally the for you grace. As Peter calls it. Let me take... A moment just to define the word that's used here, grace. Uh, chances are you've heard of this word. It's, it's the Greek word charis. Uh, the root word of charis is chiro, meaning to rejoice or be glad. As the complete word study dictionary puts it, charis means grace, particularly that which causes joy, pleasure, gratification, favor, acceptance, for a kindness granted or desired, a benefit, thanks, gratitude. A favor done without expectation of return. The absolutely free expression of the loving kindness of God to men finding its only motive in the bounty and benevolence of the giver. Unearned and unmerited favor. End quote. It is the grace that produces all of the songs that we sing about grace. Amazing grace. Grace that's greater than all our sin. Grace alone. Your grace is enough. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace of Jesus. Were it not for grace. Grace unmeasured. Etc., etc., etc. I mean, I, I actually went to uh, Crossway's Song Select database uh, where all of the songs are written and I typed in grace. And I came up with the, what that produced was 35,576 songs that have grace in the title or speak of grace. That's how much is written about grace. There was only a couple others that I started typing in other words. There's only a couple other words that come up more than that. One of them's love. One of them's praise. Grace. Songs written about the grace that would come to you. And it is the grace that came through Jesus Christ. The Apostle John describes it so well in just a few verses of chapter 1. 
in John 1, verses 14 through 17. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has been ahead of me, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And it was this grace upon grace that the prophets were inquiring about. And after Peter gives us this new synonym for our great salvation, this grace that would come to you, he continues by telling us another facet of our great salvation. Our great salvation was the subject of careful searches and inquiries made by the prophets. Our great salvation was the subject of careful searches and inquiries made by the prophets. If you will, please look at verse 10 with me again. Concerning this salvation... The prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. So the word translated as careful searches is the sense of searching diligently or searching intently associated with it. And the word translated as inquiries has the sense of careful inquiries. So we might say then that they searched intently and with the greatest of care. As Grudem puts it, The words imply active effort in looking to find something. Uh, Perhaps the best-known prophet for this was the prophet Daniel. Uh, Daniel should be fairly recent in our minds here at Crossway as we went through Daniel not long ago. And if you'll recall in Daniel 7, Daniel uh, says in, in verses 15 and 16, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed within me, and the visions of my head kept alarming me, I came near to one of those who were standing by and began seeking out from him the exact meaning of all of this. Daniel wanted to know what he was talking about. He was prophesying of things he didn't fully understand. Again in Daniel 9, we were told by Daniel that he discerned in the books the number of the years concerning which the word of Yahweh came to Jeremiah the prophet for the fulfillment of the laying waste of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He sought out not only his own prophetic visions, but Daniel went to the writings of Jeremiah as well to search out, to seek out, to make inquiries about what God was doing about this grace that would come to us. And Daniel also tells us in chapter 12, verse 8, as for me, I heard, but could not understand So I said, my Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? Daniel could not understand what was being said even after making careful searches and inquiries. So what was his purpose? We're going to talk about that in a few minutes. According to Peter, it wasn't only Daniel, but all of the prophets who prophesied of the grace to come to us made careful searches and inquiries about the salvation Peter is actually just restating something that the Lord Jesus Christ said to the disciples when he was with them. In Luke 10, verse 23 through 24, Jesus spoke, and turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. And to hear the things which you hear 
and did not hear them. It's interesting to me the turn in Peter's life after the resurrection and ascension of our Lord. If you could remember back to the first message on this apostolic author, but that happened about two years ago. But if you could think back that far and remember that message perfectly, um, what, you'd, you know, what you'd remember is that um, Peter, after Christ's ascension, stands up before 120 disciples. And what he says to them is that the scripture has to be fulfilled regarding Judas and that they should choose another to take his office. And from that point on, we see throughout the scripture this profound dependency upon the Old Testament scripture in Peter's life. It, it's, it's permeated in all of the messages that, that he gives all throughout Acts. He's constantly going back to the Old Testament scriptures. We'll see that throughout 1 Peter as well. Peter becomes heavily reliant upon the Old Testament scriptures, upon the word of God and here in our text, he informs us that the prophets made careful searches and inquiries into this grace that is for us. And after Peter, oh, well, Peter, he doesn't stop there, um, was simply telling us that they were searching intently and with the greatest care regarding our salvation. But in particular, um, please, please read verse 11 with me. Inquiring to know what time or what kind of time the spirit of Christ within him was indicating as he was predicting the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. How many of you have probably already noticed as we read through the passage earlier uh, and now read it again as you have the New American Standard that it says there seeking to know what person or time uh, while the Legacy Standard Bible which I'm reading from uh, is saying, inquiring to know what time or what kind of time. Uh, those of you carrying New King James would have seen searching what or what manner of time. It all boils down to uh, this first what and whether it's masculine or neuter, and there's debates about what it, what it is. And so you have the different versions here talking about that. And since the context indicates that this is a reference to Christ already, I think the New King James and the Legacy Standard do a good job at indicating that the, the prophets were seeking to know what the Spirit of Christ was indicating and what kind of time the Spirit of Christ was indicating, or more clearly, the circumstances and the timing that the Spirit of Christ was indicating. Just a note here, the Spirit of Christ is indeed the Holy Spirit. The spirit who gave the prophets visions. The spirit who gave the prophets revelation and revealed truth to them. So first of all, the prophets sought to know the circumstances of the sufferings that would come to Christ and the glories to follow. The spirit of Christ within the prophet told them that, that the Christ would suffer, followed by the glories to follow. Perhaps that's why the prophets were not asking why. Why would the Christ suffer? Because they'd already been told the Christ was going to suffer. So the next question to ask is, what kind of circumstances would be in place that would allow the anointed one of Israel to suffer? Perhaps the earliest indication of Christ's suffering was spoken of in the garden when Yahweh cursed the serpent and indicated that the serpent would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, his heel. And although... That would be a matter for careful searching and inquiry. The next most prominent prophecy 
in uh, the Old Testament is that of David's in Psalm 22, the psalm that Jesus himself indicated upon the cross when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They didn't have psalm numbers back then. And so how did they refer to a psalm? But by the first uh, phrase of the verse. And so when Christ is on the cross and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's a direct indication. Go to Psalm 22 and look at it. It talks about the sufferings of Christ. But did the prophets know that this was a reference to Christ? Or just one another one of David's cries out to God? However, by the time you get to Isaiah and his prophecies, it's clear that the Messiah, God's servant, would suffer and be glorified. Um, listen as I read Isaiah 53, 10 through 12. But Yahweh was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If you would place his soul as a guilt offering, he will see his seed. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of Yahweh will succeed in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. And you all know that's just a small portion of what Isaiah 52 and 53 talk about when it comes to the suffering servant. It is full of the sufferings that the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, would suffer. But also you got a glimpse here of the glories that are to follow. He tells them, I will divide for him a portion with the many, and he will divide the spoil with the strong. Would the prophets have ever imagined that Israel would be back in their own land while being ruled by another country and that their Messiah would not have thrown off the oppression of, of the, the country that's ruling over them, but instead give himself up as a guilt offering for Israel's sins, and not only Israel's sins, but also for the Gentiles? Would the prophets have imagined that? To be clear, they sought to know the circumstances of the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. They knew that Christ would suffer based on all the predictions of the Spirit of Christ within them. They knew that. And this is what Jesus indicated to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember when he came up to them and they started, they were walking and they just stood still, looking sad. And of course, those two disciples didn't recognize Jesus. But here's what he says. He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he interpreted to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. 
if they knew of all the prophecies about his sufferings, why would they not also believe in the prophecies about the Christ entering into his glory? Well, probably because the disciples were not anticipating that he would suffer unto death. Yet the Old Testament does tell of the glories that will follow. Psalm 2 says the nations will be given to him as an inheritance and the ends of the earth as a possession. Isaiah tells us that his glory will be revealed and all flesh will see it together for the mouth of Yahweh has spoken it. Jeremiah tells us that Yahweh says that in those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. And Daniel reminds us yet again in one of his visions that one like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. That's the glory that's to come. Prophets sought to know the circumstances that would bring about the sufferings and the subsequent glories of the Christ. But furthermore, the prophets sought to know the time of the sufferings that would come to Christ and the glories to follow. They're not just looking for the circumstances, they're looking for the time. We understand that the disciples of Jesus at one time had a different understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be and do. They anticipated a leader that would come and throw off the oppression of Rome and deliver them from all their troubles. However, after Jesus' crucifixion, the disciples were forlorn. And that same Emmaus road, on that same Emmaus road, Jesus, they said to Jesus, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. They had already given up hope. The disciples had similar thinking to the prophets who sought to know not only the circumstances of his sufferings and the glories to follow, but the timing of those sufferings and the glories to follow. Also, it appears that not only the disciples, but most prophets did not see a distinction in in time or were even aware that there would be a first coming of Christ and that there, there would then be a period of time followed by a second coming of Christ. first coming, predominantly focusing on his sufferings, noting that Christ's resurrection and his ascension is part of his glories, while the second coming would focus predominantly on the subsequent glories and the the glories to follow. Most of the prophets understood that the timing was still far away, but saw it coming all at once. Ezekiel 12, 27 says, Son of man, behold, the house of Israel saying, the vision that he sees is for many years from now, and he prophesies of times far off. Daniel 8, 17 says, Son of man, understand that the vision pertains to the time of the end. Zephaniah 3:20 says, At that time I will bring you in, even at the time when I gather you together. Indeed, I will give you to be a name and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says Yahweh. The disciples heard Jesus talking about 
the destruction of the temple and their first question was what what time when are you going to do this right they say tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the and of the end of the age the disciples wanted to know the timing as well not just the prophets they desired to know the timing of these things all the way up into his ascension right before jesus christ ascends into heaven In Acts chapter 1, what do the disciples ask him? Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom of Israel? But he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons which the Father has set by his own authority. They were seeking to know the timing of all of these things. Daniel is the prophet in the Old Testament who we, we see spending the most time receiving revelation and looking into the timing of the sufferings of Christ and the times of the glories to follow, looking for that time, times and half a time, as we saw over and again in the book of Daniel. However, we are told that all those who prophesied of the grace to come to us made these careful searches and inquiries, not just Daniel. Even now, we delight to look at the future and the, the second coming of Christ And we look through the scriptures trying to discern when is he coming again? What will it look like? And of course we debate it a lot too. Peter tells us that the prophets sought to know the timing of the sufferings and the comings of Christ. But Peter doesn't stop there. The next facet of this great salvation he tells us about is that the prophets received even further revelation. Uh, please read verse 12 again with me. Look at, look at verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things, which now have been declared to you through those who proclaim the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. And what was that further revelation that they received? It was the fact that they were not serving themselves in these things, but you. Earlier, I referred to Daniel 12, 8, and where, where Daniel says, As for me, I heard but could not understand. So I said, My Lord, what will be the outcome of these events? The answer is to his questions in verse 9. Then he said, Go your way, Daniel, for these words are concealed and sealed up until the time of the end. Those words weren't for Daniel. They were to be sealed up until the time of the end. It is clear that the prophets did not always understand the revelation that they were given. But it didn't stop them from making careful searches and inquiries into it. In Daniel's case, it was made clear that the revelation was not for him, but for those at a later date. Peter is clear that the prophets were not serving themselves in the things that they were searching regarding this great salvation and the grace that was to come. They were serving Peter's audience. To know and understand that the sufferings of Christ were predicted as well as to know that Christ actually suffered all the things that the prophets said he was going to suffer, and to know that there are glories to come, can give those to whom Peter is writing great encouragement, great hope in the midst of their sufferings, in the midst of their trials, in the midst of their testings. Hope is often 
most often the goal of those who are writing to instruct us in God's way. An example, providing examples another way, an example that will instruct us. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans 15, 4, For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Why? So that the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, so that through the perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. That's the goal. Hope. He also tells the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, now these things happen to them as an example. And they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Let's not miss this point. The prophets weren't just writing for the people in their own day or even for themselves. The prophets and the text bears out that the prophets' revelations and, and the subsequent writings were directly intended to minister to Peter's audience at that time. That's the word of God and the power of the word of God. That includes you and me. This salvation that they were searching out and writing about was for us. The next facet of our great salvation that Peter wants us to draw our attention to is, is that our great salvation was announced through those who preached the gospel by the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 12 with me again. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you in these things which now have been declared to you through those who proclaimed the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. This great salvation that the prophets had been making careful searches and inquiries over is the same gospel which has now been announced to all of them through those who proclaimed it to them by the Holy Spirit. The gospel was announced and preached to them. The, the things that the prophets researched, the most important information for all mankind, that's the salvation of their souls. That's what they were looking into. And it found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. And the apostles and the evangelists preached that gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And whenever the word of God goes forth, the spirit of God goes with it. The spirit of God always accompanies his word. He produced it through the, the prophets. He produced it through the apostles. Yahweh tells us in Isaiah 55, 11, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what pleases me and without succeeding in the manner for which I said it, sent it. His word will accomplish all his good pleasure. The gospel is power. As Romans 1 tells us, it's the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. If you would, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. Um, Peter's reference here in Acts 2 to the work of the Holy Spirit may actually be in causing the men that were there to speak in different tongues on the day of Pentecost. 
why do I say that? Well, let's read this section here in, in Acts 2. We're going to read verse 1 through 11. Follow along with me. When that day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues like fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. Tongues. Language. So they were astounded and marveling, saying, Behold, are not all of all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the district of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. Now did any of you recognize any of the regions that Luke referred to in this passage? There are three here in this passage that Peter is writing to, as we saw up in verse 1 and 2. Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia. Three of the six regions that Peter's writing to at this very point are listed here where people are hearing for the first time the gospel through the Holy Spirit that has empowered the apostles to speak in other languages. It is possible, if not likely, that those who heard the gospel in their own language on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven took the same gospel back to their own regions and are some of the very same people to whom Peter is writing at this very moment. It's possible that Peter is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit at that time. And Peter wants them to know that the gospel is preached because of the work of the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. It isn't about the announcer. It isn't about the preacher. It isn't about the prophet. And it's all about the message given through the Holy Spirit. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The heavenly gospel that the Lord of glory chose to bless us with. Well, there's one more facet of salvation that Peter wants his audience to be aware of. And that's our great salvation is a valued focus of the angels. Our great salvation is a valued focus of the angels. Look at that last phrase of verse 12 with me. Things into which angels long to look. This phrase is a reference to the enthusiasm that the angels have in regard to the salvation of mankind and their eagerness, the eagerness that they have to look into it. Why would they be so eager to look into it? Well, if you'll recall with me, angels cannot experience redemption. When the angels fell, and many of them fell and followed after Lucifer, 
They were not given the option of redemption. And so here, the same creator decides to redeem mankind, humankind, flesh and blood. He decides to become one of them. What? Why would he do that? The angels long to look into this. And the angels delight to see redemption and watch its fulfillment in the life of a believer. In the Gospels, when the, when the woman calls her friends to rejoice with her over the coin that she had lost and now is found, Jesus says this. He tells us in Luke 15, 10, In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Joy. The angels rejoicing over this great salvation. Do you have that same kind of joy? Are you walking in the joy of your salvation? The angels are rejoicing over it, marveling at it, longing to look into it. We're told in Revelation 5 by the Apostle John that he heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Oh, they long to look and sing about this great salvation that we've been given, that they were not. The phrase, long to look, is the same phrase used when Peter and John ran to the tomb and Peter stooped down to look into the... He was, he was not just taking a quick look. He was standing there gazing, looking through, looking for evidence in that tomb. It's the same word that's used here. The angels highly value and focus on the matter of our great salvation. Well, let's wrap this up with some application for everyone, shall we? First, let me talk to those of you who have never repented of your sin and never placed faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You should be thinking seriously about doing that today. Right now. The prophets were looking into it. The Holy Spirit sent from heaven gave men different languages to tell other people about it. The disciples were looking all about to the timing of their salvation. Angels eager to look into this idea of salvation, this concept that they've watched over the years. So what are you waiting on? Why haven't you turned from your sinful way and turned to Christ? If you've never repented of your sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, I'm pleading with you to do so today. Won't you turn to him? And for those of you who have trusted in Christ, for those of you who have already repented of your sin and you're following Christ, praise the Lord. Walk in the joy of your salvation. Walk in it. Some of you I know are saved. You need to inform your face. You need to let your heart sing 
the praises of God for all that he has done to you and for you. And please let this passage and these truths increase your hope. Will you do that? Let it increase your hope, your hope of the glories to follow, your hope of heaven. Verse 3 tells us that we were born again to a living hope. It's not a dead hope. It's a living hope. So when we have right now our hope of heaven, regardless of our current circumstances, now Peter's audience, they were in tough circumstances. They were in trials, temptations, testings. They were going through a rough time. There's a lot of persecution going on to the audience that Peter was writing to. And he was rightfully pointing to them to the place where their hope is found, their great salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. So regardless of the current circumstances that you're facing and what the future brings our way, we have a Savior who is God in the flesh with many, many glories to follow. Remind yourself of the gospel. Know that the prophets and the angels understood its importance and rejoice in all that's been provided for you through Christ's sufferings and all the glories that are to follow. Let's pray. Well, Father, thank you for this truth yet again. This truth that the prophets made careful searches and inquiries into. This truth about our great salvation what you have provided for us in Christ is nothing short of spectacular and amazing grace. Grace that has come to us. Oh, Father, might we find great delight, great joy in the salvation that we've we found in him, that you've brought us to through your choosing, through your foreknowledge, as we've already seen in this passage. Thank you, Father. And Lord, for those who are here this morning and have not placed their faith and trust in Christ, oh, Father, I pray that you will not let them walk out of here without a disturbed spirit. One that is fearful to fall into the hands of the living God. One that's fearful because you're going to, when Christ returns, you're, he's going to deal out retribution on those who don't know God and don't obey the gospel, this gospel, the gospel that was proclaimed through your word this morning. Oh, Father, might they turn to you in repentance and faith, placing their trust in Jesus Christ, the one who can save them from their sin. Save souls this morning, we pray. And Father, use us this week to share your word and your truth with others so that they might come to know you and to have this great salvation that we've been blessed with as well. We pray for your blessing upon your word that's gone forth this morning. We pray in Jesus' name.